Creators of STEM podcast, a place where we want to inspire younger generations to pursue STEM careers and activities. As your host for today, my name is Kevin and I am a student on team 6904 Sarah Watts, a robotics team located in Watts. As you may know, we elaborate on different perspectives on STEM fields and current world events. Today, we have a special guest, guest who is an environmental activist, Moses Massenberg. Um, before we begin, would you please introduce yourself? Thank you for having me. Um, like Kevin said, my name is Moses Massenberg. I am a scholar of African-American history. I'm a father. I'm an environmental activist, a farmer, a gardener, um, and I aspire to inspire young people to pursue their dreams in STEM um, and then apply those, those passions to bringing about change in the world that we need to see. And we as young people appreciate your aspiration. Um, now to transition a little bit to what actually inspired you to be an activist, if you don't mind me asking. So I like to say that I got my start at UC Santa Cruz, but that's not true. Um, UC Santa Cruz is where I earned my bachelor's degree, uh, where I did my college work. However, I would say that my, my start as an activist started much sooner than that in Watts and in Inglewood um, and in South Central. In particular, I grew up watching my aunts sell baskets and flowers on the corner, my aunt Flory Taylor, my aunt Para Gaston, and they 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 started at the corner of Manchester and Western near a Ralph. There's a Ralph's over there, but it was more than just about making money. They were a community presence, and the way that mothers and and sweethearts for Valentine's Day and so on and so forth lit up whenever they would get a dozen roses prepared by my aunt's hands or some plants that my aunt would give instructions on caretaking for that showed me the importance of, 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 of service. And I don't just mean let's serve to make money. I mean, let's make people happy with things that come from the earth. So from about age six until I was 18, I watched them prepare plants and sell flowers on street corners to people who needed those things to make them feel better and have a little color in their world against you know, systemic racism against police brutality, against environmental blight, and against just outright resource deprivation. So I think my my years as an activist started in the from the cradle. That's amazing. You know, um, growing up, you know, uh, me as well, just seeing people, well, fam family really, because it's more inspirational, I feel, when it's like someone close to you, like a family member, and you see them being an inspiration for the community. It really motivates the person, and I'm glad that actually motivated you to motivate more. Um, uh, that leads me to my next question. What resources and opportunities have helped you learn more about being an activist? So I'm able to tell you that I believe my activism started with my aunts, with watching them with their the work that they did on the streets, with inspiring young people to learn to make money for themselves in ways that did not destroy them um, because of my education. So because I went to school, I did well in high school, went on to college and 
sort of learn to use the voice that I had always possessed in a more constructive manner, uh, and then learn to think critically. I'm able to reflect on my childhood and reflect on my time in Watts and my, on my time in Inglewood and in South Central in such a way that allows me to make sense of my lived experiences through a lens of empowerment, through a lens of social justice, through a lens of environmental activism and economic activism and so on and so forth. And as a result of that, I'm then able to speak the experiences of the people who live in these spaces and work in these spaces and survive these spaces in such a way that brings life to their stories. So now that I have my training in African-Americans history and I specialize in African-American women's history in particular, I can look at Black women in Watts and I can look at Latinos in Watts and I can look at Afro-Latino women in Watts and I can speak to what service they're doing. So if they're at the soup kitchens, I can put their work at soup kitchens and in gardens and in churches and in at clinics and in the childcare facilities and centers into a much broader historical context and show that Black and Latino women have been doing these service projects and have been serving humanity on this land. Native and indigenous peoples have been serving people on this land since the beginning of time. And when I think that way, then I'm able to put the people around me into a much brought onto a much broader spectrum, into a much larger realm of thought that then allows me to show them their true power and their true potential, and therefore allow them to see themselves as members of a universe that is one that relies on their willingness to fight for a better planet, as opposed to they're, they're seeing themselves merely as victims of police brutality or of as people who need or are perceived to need uh, welfare or, or, or social services. Yes, people need welfare. Yes, people need social services. Yes, police brutality must end. And also, we must be stewards of the land and we must grow food to feed our children. And we must teach literacy and we must teach people to use their voices so that they don't get taken advantage of by their employers. And we must teach them what it means to be visionary and to plan ahead and to think of future generations in service, as opposed to just merely doing an act of service for a photo op in the ways that a lot of these nonprofits send folks in from these corporations and from these uh, places like Beverly Hills to come in to our neighborhoods merely so that they could take photos and put them on social media and pretend like you know, they, they, they care or that they have access to black people or brown people in such a way that validates them as non-racist. But we're more than just photo ops. We're a strong people and we can do for ourselves as much as anyone else can do for us. And we're the leaders that need to be controlling the budgets in places like Watts. And we're the, lead, we're the robotics teams and we're the intellectuals and we're the young people that are gonna make ways in the, in the future of STEM. And we ought to be given our rightful place under the sun to do so. You know what, that was an amazing response to that question. I really do appreciate your response because you, you hit a lot of perfect points, especially how you, how you said um, the, the, the soup kitchens part. And um, you know, uh, you're, you're like, advocating for a underrepresented group 
which is women, you know, uh, even though a lot of people don't think so, you know, women are like, you know, second guess and second minded and things like that, especially when it comes to low income neighborhoods, because, you know, this, you know, they, they grew up here. So, you know, you don't have to think too much more. And I also appreciate that you, you, you talked about being a photo op. Um, I, I agree that, that organizations would just, you know, they only care when it's like valuable to them. And that's where I feel like a lot of things don't work out for the community. Like, yeah, there's like little growing tree uh, programs and everything like that, but the, they they come, then they leave. You know, in the community, you know, there's still people here living and doing these things and, you know, being for this community. But after those other people leave, which is like, you know, people from higher income neighborhoods or whatnot, there's still people here and there's still people who are still struggling. Yes, that, the, those programs help for that amount of time, but, you know, it wasn't nothing long term. It was just for something, you know, to, to, to get something out the way type thing or like, a, a, what's the word for it? Like an act of pity on almost like to, you know, and I, and I, and I really do appreciate that you are being going a little bit more further with your work and um, really advocating and talking about these things and not only talking, acting on them, which leads me to my next question. Um, it is hard to um, get support in general when you want to advocate for certain um, topics. Uh, depending on the topic, depending on the people, depending on your audience. My question is, um, was there someone who supported you and guided you when you first started, um, meaning like advocating? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I can talk about some of my mentors and that's what I will do with this, with, in answering this question. But one of the things that I like to say is when nonprofits come into Watts and when they come into Compton, they ought to consult people like you, Heaven, and they ought to consult the women who are on the ground because instead of just coming in and giving us feel-good programs and allowing us to plant trees, we need to be at the decision table. We need to be taught the skills or be allowed to have the experiences that give us the skills that are necessary for us to have to then go on to meetings with the United Nations, to the White House, and to the places where decisions that affect our communities are made every day so that we can champion our communities there. We don't need folks to send people in here that live in Beverly Hills and live in Culver City and live in other places that need to justify having receiving lucrative grants from government agencies and then come and have meetings on our behalf and put themselves on clocks for payroll. Instead, we ought to be getting paid to make decisions for our community so then we can take those skills and we can go into the, a broader world and make much more effective and, and informed decisions in conjunction with some of the folks that sit in these seats of power. So that, that leads me to some of my mentors. And my mentors have allowed me or empowered me sort of to, to navigate this space, these spaces in a way that allows me to keep my spirit intact and still be an effective leader despite the things that I see in terms of police brutality and in terms of environmental racism and in terms of 
economic blight. So one of, one of my one of my favorite and dearest mentors is Stephanie Y. Evans, Dr. Stephanie Y. Evans. And Dr. Evans right now is 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 going around the country discussing black women's health and black women's healing. And one of one of my favorite aspects of her current research is that she looks at Rosa Parks and how Rosa Parks kept her her mind right and her spirit right in the long civil rights movement. So we know Rosa Parks, Montgomery bus boycott. You know, we know Montgomery bus boycott strike during the civil rights movement. And some historians say that that was the beginning of the American civil rights movement, but that's debatable. But we don't know the Rosa Parks that was active as a seamstress and as a church organizer and as a community organizer long before the Montgomery bus boycott, nor do we know the Rosa Parks who was active in Detroit some 20 years after the end of the Montgomery bus boycott and never stopped. Now, we, we don't know the, the Rosa Parks who was friends with Malcolm X. We don't know the Rosa Parks whose, whose husband Raymond Parks slept with a revolver, a pistol under his pillow so that when white, when the KKK and white supremacists came and firebombed his, it tried to firebomb his house, he always had his gun ready and he, and he would take the dynamite stick and he would throw it right back at the KKK or he would take it and he would take it with his bare hands and he would take the flame out. We don't know that Rosa Parks. And we also don't know the Rosa Parks who was a master at yoga. She was a gardener. She was a painter. She loved wine. And she taught young people yoga so that they can have quiet places to relax their minds. And the reason that they needed quiet places to relax their minds is because of all the traumas that they were enduring. You know, the civil rights movement didn't necessarily begin with just the Montgomery bus boycott. There was a children's march when a bunch of children were incarcerated and they filled the jails with children in the South. And Stephanie Y. Evans, who I, 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 I think of as like an intellectual mentor, as a mother of my scholarship, is one of the mentors that, you know, that sort of influenced my, my thought trajectory. She's currently a professor um, at, uh, and director of women's studies at Georgia State University. And then another mentor that is dear to me, well, there's, there's, there's a, a few more, but I'm going to say when I was at UC Santa Cruz, I met a woman named Angela Davis. And Am Angela Davis was known for like the Free Angela movement and was very active during the Black Power and the Civil Rights era. Um, a lot of people don't know she grew up with Condoleezza Rice, like they're both from Alabama. Um, but when I first met her and I got to hear her speak at UC Santa Cruz, she inspired me to start thinking critically about history and about women's studies and about sociology. And she, her meeting her led me to meet one of the biggest persons in my corner so far, which is Bettina Aptheker. Now, Bettina Aptheker is a professor of African, of, I'm sorry, of women's studies, of feminist studies at UC Santa Cruz. And Bettina really challenged me not to just sit in classrooms and think or sit in classrooms and write essays, but she she taught me to take my activism to the streets. So my I think one of my first major acts of environmental activism was at UC Santa Cruz when the administration there was trying to cut down some trees, some these giant beautiful redwood trees to build a new science building. And I chained myself around the trees and I said, you will not cut these trees down. It was me and a bunch of other activists. And 
Bettina sat me down and she helped me put that into context and really, really learned that Black people had been advocating for the environment for a long time. And that although I was surrounded by majority white folks and was in culture shock at UC Santa Cruz, that I really needed to learn more Black history so that I could put myself into a broader context. So it was very important to have mentors like that in your corner. And I could, we could talk more about that later. I know we're short on time, so I'll stop there with that question. I, I, I appreciate the ramble and the, and the extra um, information. I actually, you know, you, you told me some information I never even heard about. I never knew it was a children's march. Like, yeah, of course I knew like, you know, um, there, was be, there was children being um, incarcerated back in the day still now hey um but i didn't i didn't know that you know and you know you mentioned even chaining yourself to a tree i i've only seen that in movies and you know to actually um do it and be a part of it is it's, it's like wow okay this happens and you know these are things that are important and should be talked about but for my um next question i do want would like to know if you even had another interest before being an a, a, activist. What career were you into, or like what career were you pursuing if you didn't change course? Yeah, so I actually went to I started school for medical school. I was on a medical track, um, and I wanted to be a doctor. And I was raised to believe that being a doctor is a prestigious thing and that I would make a lot of money. And when I got to college, I took my first class. It was called A History of Racism in the American Medical Field. <laughs> that was literally the first class I took. And the American medical field was so racist that I figured that I would be destroyed if I became a doctor because there was no way that I was gonna remain black and not be vocal about some of the racism in the American medical uh, field. And what the first thing I learned about that I, I heard about as a child, but I didn't really go into detail with like I did in school was the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. And some of the things that happened to the men that were experimented on as a result of that. And then after that, I just started to learn more and more about like genocide, like how native and indigenous peoples were displaced and manipulated um, and I learned about how um, institutionalized sexism and racism sort of was at play to disenfranchise mothers all over the United States and other parts of the world. And then I just said, you know, yeah, I can be a doctor um, and I can spend eight years in medical school, but what about every, everyone who, who, who might need help? during that time. And one of the things that happened was Hurricane Katrina hit. And when Hurricane Katrina hit, I went down on a service trip for what they call spring break during undergrad. And I, when I saw the effects, the devastating effects of Hurricane Katrina, when I saw black grandmothers in wheelchairs slumped over, when I saw houses that had just been flooded out and when I looked in the sky and, and saw the dark clouds and sort of saw lightning for the first time and then when I went down to the levees and I stood up 
and I'm 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 not even I don't consider myself to be a very tall man. I'm not an NBA player by a long shot, but I was able to see over the levees with my boots on the ground. And when I saw the vast body of water that was supposed to be held by that thin, that thin wall of, of, of metal that breached to flood the, the lower ninth ward and, and cause the devastation that had become known as, you know, the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. And then I turned my back to the levee and I looked over at the French Quarter, which is a more affluent place. And I saw their concrete wall that was as tall as a, as a, as a, as a, as a two-story house and that had regularly had maintenance on it and that had lighting and cameras. I knew that I needed to use my voice for much more than just curing people's physical ailments. I knew mm -hmm. that I needed to use my voice and, and, and do a, a, a sort of social surgery to get some of these these social illnesses out of out of our 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 body politic as we call it that is racism sexism ableism that is classism that is all of the isms that i was learning about in undergrad and how those intersecting um those the, the intersection of those different oppressions sort of worked against people so if you're black and you're in a wheelchair and you're poor and you're a woman and a single mother at the same time, then you are at the lowest possible realm of, of, of the social sphere. And I figured that if a poor black single mother with a disability who's illiterate is empowered, then everybody else in the rest of the world would be okay. Because so long as black women were the victims of Hurricane Katrina, and we sat by and we allowed that to happen without raising our voices, then the rest of the world was in danger. So long as, as Black women are under the boots of the world, then the rest of the world is, is, is in danger. I mean, I, I think back to things like what's happening in your Ukraine, I think that has a lot to do with like racism and, and ethnic <laughs> and so on and so forth. So I figured I dedicate my life to solving the issues that black women at the bottom of the bottom face, wherever they face it in the world and that everything else would be okay. And then eventually I'd have time to get enough rest to become a doctor and go to medical school. And as a black young girl, I appreciate that because people, a lot of people, or even if they do, they don't talk about it, but they don't see the clear inequalities that black women face not just as a black man, because you could be a black man and be heard, but as a black woman, you, your voice will go in and out their ear. And I've personally experienced that. Um, yeah. And that's for black women all over the diaspora. That's for uh -huh. black women in, on the East coast of Africa, on the West coast of Africa, black women in Europe. Black don't, it don't just Australia. come for America, it's yep. everywhere. Everywhere, wherever a black woman is, the, the chances are that the boots of the world in her part of the world are on her back or on her neck and mm -hmm. she's not being given the resources that she needs in order to take care of the communities that she serves. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. I completely agree. And that's why advocating is so important. And so, you know, there is such a thing that should be something that people should 
always, well, not always, but people should feel the need to do because there's so many other things and so many problems in the world that could be fixed by just people listening and understanding, and not just understanding, acting on their actions, not just creating bills, not just creating policies, is you have to put things into work. And that's why I feel like advocate, ab advocation is so important because once you advocate though, you could, you could get to work, you could get moving, you could, you, and if you advocate the right way, you're gonna see the fruit of your labor. Um, but that leads me to my next question. Um, what are you currently doing as of right now? Um, that could be like plans on your application, your current jobs or, you know, programs or, you know, policies you may be leading. If you don't mind me asking, like, what, what are you currently up to as of right now? So right now I have a, 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 a conflict. So I am currently a single father. I have a beautiful daughter named Bettina, named after one of my mentors. And I have a young son named Asala. And he's named for Asala stands for the Association for the Study of African American Life and History, which is the organization that started Negro History Week, which is now known as Black History Month. So those two children are my primary responsibility. However, to assure that those children will be okay for the remainder of their childhoods and perhaps for the rest of their lives, I've surrounded them by community members on farms and in community gardens and at food giveaways and at clothing giveaways and at health clinics and at soup kitchens so that they can learn what it, what it, what it means to have a life of service and see what returns come to one who serves. So for example, anytime my children are hungry, they say, dad, I'm hungry, I'll be right back. Now, normally when people hear that and a kid walks out the door, it's like, okay, I'm hungry. I'm getting the car. I'm dad, I'll be right back. I'm six, but I'm gonna ride my bike down the street to the liquor store to go get some chips or a Lunchable or dad, don't worry about me. You know, and I'm, I'm panicking. Cause I'm like, okay, children, where are you going? But they say, my children say, dad, I'm going outside. Um, I'm going to go harvest my lunch. So they go out to the garden they get collard greens, they get peas, they get beets, they get strawberries, they get fava beans, they get peppers, they get tomatoes. And they do this thing where they say, dad, I'm making my salad. Let me make my salad in peace. I say, okay. They come with these very robust, delicious, well-seasoned salads, garden fresh salads. And they season it with citruses that come from the garden. So they get the lemons, you know, from the lemon tree or the pomegranates from the pomegranate tree or they add a little blackberries and my daughter likes to get pecans from the pecan tree and crack them she she squeezes two of them together to crack them or she'll get a a little rock and smush them and then put them in her salad but these children have learned to feed themselves directly from the land and they develop a sense of comfort with the women in the garden that serve all of the children of watts through their stewardship of the land and my children never want for clothing. They never want for a sip of water. They never want for anything. And I don't have to spend money and they don't have to spend money. And none of these community members have to spend money because there's a, there's a young kid named, named Moses, Moises, he's 12. 
he takes care of these beautiful chickens and his chickens lay eggs every day. So we always have eggs. There's another community member who is really good at taking care of her avocado tree. And avocados are expensive, but we always get free avocados. In exchange for the free avocados, we always give her some of our chilies from the garden. And there's other community gardens all over Compton and Watts that grow these wonderful tomatoes from different parts of the world. And we exchange food. There's alleys in Watts, where if you walk down the alleys and you see the graffiti all over the place and you see that the concrete needs to be you know, fixed, that's one thing. But if you really go there and you say, you know what, I wanna take a deep breath and I wanna walk slowly and I wanna practice mindfulness in this alley. I wanna be sure that my ears are open and my eyes are open. I wanna look to the left and look to the right and, and look up and look down. You'll start to notice that these alleys are actually food highways. And my children have been socialized to identify the tree, the food that hangs from the trees over the back fences in the alleys. So they can walk down an alley and they can find avocados and oranges. They can find chayotes. They can find pepinos, cucumbers that grow wild. And they can identify those things. And not only can they cut them you know, with their hands or harvest them with their hands and fill up their little baskets or backpacks with food so they don't go hungry, but they've learned seed saving. So even after they've consumed the food from the salads that they made directly from the land with their six and four-year-old hands, they take the seeds and then they replant the seeds and they tend to the seeds to assure that other children like them have access to food. Then they pass those seedlings out to other family members who might have some yard space or who might need a pot to uh, get some oregano from to assure that they too can eat healthy and don't have to rely on us begging place organizations or corporations like Trader Joe's or Whole Foods to come into our neighborhood and allow us access to healthy food that shouldn't be priced as high as it is in places like those. That's actually really, really cool. Like, that's cool. I I wish, even though I do live in Watts, I wish uh, my surrounding neighbors and everything were that connected and that, um, you know, just open to giving back to the community, and which I'm pretty sure some of them may be, but it's just the fact, like, y'all, 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 y'all help each other. Each person helps one another. And that's so cool. Like that, that's something you we would want to, to see. We have in to awaken neighborhoods. We have to awaken every person. We have to awaken every person in Watts to their true potential. And if and if that means I putting agree. a seed in the ground or watching it grow, then that's what we do, Heaven. But you you are the future. So your neighbors will be initiated because they will watch you continue to grow. And they will watch you go. So you, you are as much a part of the garden as Watts as my children are. So right now, activists like me, people like Fatima, we, we are the gardeners of Watts. You all are, the, are, the, are, the, are the, the harvest. So as we watch you grow, as we water you, as we nurture you, as we pour into you, as we empower you, you then go on, on, on to the back of a honeybee or onto the wings of a butterfly and you then pollinate other parts of the world and you empower people there, then you return back home when you get carried by the wind back to Watts. And if you think metaphorically, if you think, if you put your life into perspective and you put your potential into perspective and you realize that you are a practical solution to some of the most complex problems that we don't even realize that are coming up yet, then when, when it's time for us to meet those problems, 
then you'll, you'll have an entire community of gardeners behind you. And we'll continue to nurture you and we'll continue to water you and we'll continue to put fertilizer beneath your feet so that as you take on the world, you know that you're not alone and you never forget where you came from. Uh, I completely appreciate that because, you know, speaking of Fatima um, and just, it just speaking in general, well, speaking to you really, Moses, having this conversation as we're talking, um, it made me think twice as of things I would like to pursue, you know, advocacy. Um, I, I, I love talking. Talking is my favorite thing to do. I just have a hard time figuring out what to talk about. And something that you said, like, even though as a black woman, I, I mean, as a black young girl, soon to be black woman, uh, you know, I don't think twice on the inequalities and things such as our healthcare system, which I know there are, I'm pretty sure. I've, I've noticed a couple of them, but I never thought twice to look into the racial things that goes into uh, things such as our healthcare, things such as um, taking care of people after a hurricane, like how you mentioned the, the borders of the wall, the clear inequalities, those types of things and these types of conversations do truly spark inspiration in people like me because it makes me want to help more. It makes me want to do more, not only for myself, but for my community. Because at the end of the day, I still live here. I still have people I love that live here. And I want to see this community grow from low income to low incomes, even though, but it's a thriving community. We're not just there dirty and, you know, just um, that, that, that low income community that, that, that needs help from places like Whole Foods, where that low income community that, that, that could thrive on ourselves. Yes, we struggle, but we still have each other. And I appreciate um, advocates like you. And um, you actually mentioned Miss Fatima. Um, and speaking of her, um, I, I, I thought of, a, well, we, I thought of a question, which is, um, you know, uh, we actually heard that she support uh, her campaign for state advocacy. And I, and I was actually wondering what, what made you want to join um, her campaign? So I support and I stand behind Fatima because she, I can say to you, Heaven, I can say, um, I can ask you a question. So what's the history of your last name? Do you know it? Watson? Um, no, all I know is that I got my dad's last name and he's Jamaican. So I don't know where that goes. Okay, so then let's hypothetically speaking, let's just, just use our historical and sociological imaginations. Watson, mm -hmm. right, right? So C.H. Uh, uh, Watts, yeah. do you know who C.H. Watts is? Not at all. Okay, C.H. Watts is, is the white man that Watts is named for. Oh, wow. So he was, a, he was a railroad person and his last name was Watts, right? Now, mm -hmm. do, you, do you, you know what it means to have son after your name? So Jamison, Watson, Johnson, you heard that before? I've heard it, but I don't know what it means. Okay. It meant that if you, if, if, if you were enslaved, right? And, and you, 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 let's say, for example, the Watts plantation. Let's say we had a Watts plantation, right? 
your your father's grandparents, if, if, if they were enslaved on the Watts plantation of Jamaica, then, and, and they were property of somebody like C.H. Watts, I'm just hypothetically, I'm not saying C.H. Watts owned slaves. I haven't verified that yet, but I wouldn't be surprised. He was wealthy. His ancestors probably did. But mm -hmm. they will be from the Watts plantation and their last name will be Watson. See? Okay, I get you, I get you, I get you. Like property. Yeah. Or if a if a, if a, if a plantation owner's name was James, like Mr. James. James Son. Yes. Okay. Or, or, or John or John, John Son. You see, it's it's like a it's a it's a property ownership through patriarchy, like the ownership of a man, right? So mm -hmm. the reason that I endorse Fatima. Is because I can say something like heaven, you know, if we look into the genealogy of your name or we look into the history of your name, we might find that there's some slavery, some slavery from a Jamaican plantation um, down. And I would not be surprised. Yeah, through your ancestors and that C.H. Watts may or may not have had something to do with that plantation. Right. And then and then if I said, all right, let's do that research. Let's let's ask those questions to verify whether or not that's true. Sorry, my daughter. To verify whether or not that's true, Fatima would not look at me like I'm crazy, like, oh, you're just making some stuff up. She would say, all right, let's 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 find the facts. And then let's, let's use the facts to derive a conclusion. If we derive a conclusion, then perhaps we can find out where the Watson family's reparations are going to come from so that everyone in the Watson family can then buy a home and they don't have to go into debt to go to college. And if they want to become doctors or lawyers, they want to be activists, they want to be whatever, they're underwritten because their ancestors toiled on a plantation in Jamaica to assure that American, the American South had that American wealth. dream. Absolutely. The American, mm -hmm. the, the American dream was made possible by taking indigenous land from, from native and indigenous persons and enslaving uh, Africans from West Africa on these lands and forcing them to, to build wealth for us. Like Fatima wouldn't look at me like I was crazy if I said that. And she wouldn't fear putting some factually based evidence into her campaign. She tells it like it is. And she doesn't, she doesn't run from the truth. That's why I support Fatima. And if everyone running for office was as honest and as transparent and as consistent in their principles as Fatima and didn't take corporate money and buyouts, then I think that the world would be a much better place. Now, and I'm not saying that there's not good people who are politicians. All I'm saying is there's some questionable relationships that people have. And it's very, very difficult as an activist to stand behind someone when you know that at any minute they can change up on their principles. Or if someone puts some money in their face, they could say, you know, actually I, I, I do support you know, I know the police killed that young black man or that young black girl got shot through the chest, but, but, um, yeah, I, the police could do better, but I'm still going to take this dark money though. Fatima's not that person. So I don't have to second guess my endorsement or my support of Fatima against my activism or the, or the, eth the moral or ethical compass that I use to navigate or order my steps day to day when I'm in the garden feeding children. And that's and that's and that's real because I and I appreciate that because you appreciate realness and to to be to be real honest with you you know you appreciate realness and just just as much as I do or anyone else really as anyone should you know transparency you know people like 
sugarcoating stuff and sugarcoating just gets you into more lies. And I appreciate that, Miss Fatima. And you both stand for airing out the truth, which then leads me to my next question. What do you see yourself doing in the next five years? Um, it, uh, you know, like steps and actions. What, what do you see yourself doing? So um, one of the things that I've, I've, I've brought to the table in my respective organizations is the need for Black people's experiences and Black people's lived experiences in particular to be at the forefront of environmental movements. So there will be no more photo ops on my watch. There will be no more white people coming in from Delta Airlines to plant trees in Watts after their corporation spilled jet fuel all over our babies on their school grounds on accident. Right. There's going to be no more corruption or corporate write-offs for people who want some feel-good photo ops. Instead, the Black and Indigenous women, the Latinos who have been doing this work as a lifestyle, as a matter of life or death, will be put at the forefront of these movements because they've been at the forefront of these environmental movements since before environmental racism was articulated by activists. So when Europeans first made contact on this land and they brought their, their, their chemicals and they brought their diseases and their, they brought the things that they brought unintentionally or intentionally, and it started to affect native and indigenous peoples and it started to affect black people on this land, that's when the environmental movement began. When native and indigenous peoples had relationships with, uh, with, with, uh, with non-human beings, with living beings who, who don't occupy human bodies. That's when environmental uh, justice started. That's when environmental awareness started. So I wanna put what black and brown people are doing in places like Watts for climate change, to, to, to offset emissions, for carbon sequestering, for gardening and agriculture, a sustainability and whatnot into a much larger, larger context on a much larger stage so that the next time somebody goes and talks about the Kyoto Protocol at the White House, Black women are not a non-factor and Latina, Latinas are not a non-factor and, and Muslim women are not a non-factor when we talk about environmental justice because they've been at the forefront of this movement since before white people even realized that their cousins were destroying the planet with all their DDT chemicals and their industrialization and their railroads and their modernization and, and their, their, their uh, signals that kill all the bees and before they start launching all this stuff into space to try to walk on a moon before they ever fed some of these starving children right here in Watson Compton. That, that is where I see my life in the next five years. And as a result of that, I've had significant influence in seeing to it, seeing to the theme for African-American history being set for environmental justice and black people in agriculture and black people in, in, in botany and black people in, in, in the sciences. Um, a lot of people don't know, but every year, the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History, which was founded by Carter G. Woodson in 1915, sits around a table and makes a decision, an informed decision based on feedback from black people all over the United States, black people in Japan, Black people in different parts of Europe, and we decide on what we believe the theme for Black History Month for that particular year should be. So this year's theme is health and wellness. 
And the reason, obviously, that we did that is because of COVID. You know, and we've been acknowledging some of the, 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 the activists, people like Charles Drew, you know, people like Colin Kaepernick, people who have made a difference in seeing to it that, um, that all people, not just Black people, have access to adequate health care. And with this global warming and with the direction that our planet is currently headed in, with all these natural disasters and catastrophes, I think it's timely that Black people and, and Indigenous people are in solidarity and at the forefront of the environmental movement on a global scale. So in the next five years, you'll hear from the White House that the Black history thing, you know, theme for 2023, 2024 has something to do with Black and Indigenous solidarity uh, at the, at the, you know, in the long, the long span of history, as opposed to just, this is a brand new environment, I mean, movement, and we need to save the planet and, you know, you know, tree people and Surf Rider Foundation and those types of organizations are the ones that are really doing the hard labor. Nah, nah, we've been doing it in the hood for much longer than that because they've been putting towers that cause cancer. They've been dumping toxins mm -hmm. in rivers in New York and in Chicago and in Detroit and in Watson and in Compton and in Los Angeles and wherever black people were confined to in the slums of America because they didn't want us to live in their white suburbs and stuff. And you know what? I, I, it, it made me think, especially when you mentioned how, um, how, especially about the whole um, get together of other black people, I never heard or ever been told about that till this conversation that we're having now because it's 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 um it's really enlightening because I I never knew and that's and that's that's something I feel like um we should also talk about mental health not uh, not only just environmental health but environmental health is very important because at the end of the day we're breathing this air we're walking on these streets then when we look outside we shouldn't have to see dirt or litter not dirt but uh trash inside our sidewalks why uh almost every corner we have to turn there is a trash can probably um kicked over or trash that's not in a trash can train tracks with chairs and other suspicious items there um and that and that and that is is something big and very important and i'm glad that that should be a focus and is soon to be a focus um, for the community, all Black communities, any Black community where you find Black people. Um, yeah, and we're gonna, try, we're gonna try to get it as a focus on a household level, on a mm -hmm. local community level, on a statewide level, on a national level, on a, on a continental level, and then on an international level. And the reason that it's important to do those things is because you can go anywhere in America you can go to Chicago, you can come here and watch, you can go to Detroit, and everybody know what OE is, Old English, 40 ounce beer is, right? Mm -hmm. But if you turn around the can of, of, of OE of 40 ounces or Newport cigarettes, and you look at the actual ingredients of, of Old English, it's everything that we can grow in our own gardens. It's wheat, it's oats, and these things have been fermented. So what I normally do is I see these, I see my elders sitting on the corner. I say, hey man, 
your granddaddy used to be a farmer, huh? They said, yeah, 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 man. How you know? How you know? I said, how old are you? About 60? Yeah, man. How'd you know, man? I'm just playing dominoes. I'm just playing dominoes. I say, you know, because I'm, I'm a historian and I like to ask people random questions about their experience. Tell me what your granddaddy used to do. Well, he used to grow tobacco and he used to grow wheat, you know, in Alabama before we came here and in, in Oklahoma before we came here and parts of Texas before we came here. That's what they always say. And I say, you know, how's that that old English, that 40 ounce you, you having while you're playing dominoes and that that how's that new porch you about to light up? I say, look at the ingredients. I say, tell me on the ingredients list some of the things that your granddaddy used to grow. They start reading. They say, well, I ain't got my reading glasses, but I can see this. Man, oh, my granddaddy used to grow all of this. And I say, you know what? Let's go down the street to this community garden and let's try to grow the same things that are some of the ingredients in here. And then once they do that and they realize, you know, we in Watts and we on Grape Street, and the reason that Grape Street is called Grape Street is because this used to be the most robust farmland in the world and the best grapes ever for the finest wine were produced right here in Watts. Then that changes their thinking. They really think about street names and they think about the ingredients in the, in the beer that they're drinking and they think about the ingredients, the non-chemical, non-toxic ingredients in the Newports. And then they are able to think about those ingredients against some of the ones that they can't recognize from what their granddaddies used to grow. Like, okay, damn, granddaddy and grandmama didn't grow nicotine. They right. didn't grow this acid. What, what, what's that acid? Oh, what is that? So then we start to do consciousness raising. And when you, when, you, when, you, when you reach the community there at a Domino's game with some 40 ounce beers and you're not intimidated by those men on that corner or those women on the corner, then you, you really, really start to get the root, of, the root of the problem. When they say grassroots activism, grass, grassroots consciousness raising, that's where we really have to be, Heaven. So we, the activists, we're going to be here and we're going to be at the grassroots and we're going to be rooting on you to climb and excel and go into the heavens and go into the clouds and look down upon us and, and really bring some resources back to us because you're going to take your mind and everything that you're learning and you're going to make a big difference in the world and you're going to come back as the president of the United States and make a difference or something like that. I don't know if you want to be president, but. <laughs> I don't know if I want to be president. Mayor, probably. Senator, me. I got but... you. You got my vote for mayor. I got you. <laughs> All right, all right. And I'm gonna run for this neighborhood. All right. <laughs> but um I, you know what? This is so it's called it's so crazy that you even mentioned, you know, um how you you feel so open to go talk to um the old people who probably be sitting on a corner, like the old people probably be sitting around a corner from my house. You know, some people be so nervous to do that because they like you said, feel intimidated or feel as though, you know, they they probably off something a little more than beer, but it's it's something that I feel like should be happening because the oh as the older you get, the wiser you get, the more things you these people have done, seen things, done, been through things, and they can help show us and not only show but like help you know guide us in ways we can and don't and when we shouldn't follow to fix our community um it actually leads me to another question <laughs> what obstacles have you faced while doing environmental advocacy and how did you solve resolve them that's a great question so there's no money in the work i do 
And a lot of people reprimand me for that. They say, you know, you went to school for all this. You've been to the White House. You know, you, you publish articles. You're a brilliant teacher. There's a high demand for you to teach at all these, these universities. And, and why do you just want to play in the dirt? Or you want to shovel horse poop or, or fertilizers all, all morning? You want to wake up at 4 a.m. And, and beat the sunrise and go feel the coolness on, you know, and, and watch the, the water accumulate on the brim of your farm hat while you till the land. Like, why do you do that instead of using your brilliance to go make a lot of money and then buy a nice house somewhere in Beverly Hills and just live your life and retire? And I say to those people, well, I like to do what makes me happy. And one of the obstacles has been being criticized by people who believe that I should use my intellect and my education and my credentials to do more than just serve poor people or serve myself or serve my children here in this ghetto. And one of the things that I've learned is that so long as I'm not bought and sold, and so long as I'm never dependent upon somebody else's hand to feed me, I'm always gonna be free. And a part of that is, I don't have to worry about being fired by anyone's institution. And I don't have to worry about not getting a paycheck. And I don't have to worry about those things because the garden will feed me. And because, the wages that I receive on a daily basis are the affirmations that I get from the community who has my back, are the stories that I hear of struggle and resilience and how people overcome their circumstances with next to nothing every single day, how they make something out of nothing. Those are the wages that I love the most. But most importantly, I love the innovation. So I'm able to collect scrap metal because I watch these paisanos collect scrap metal in there 1980s errors, pickup trucks and take them to the scrapyards and make money that way. I've learned to hustle collecting mattresses, collecting those off the streets to make money selling those. I've learned more than just collecting bottles and cans. I've learned that you can make money with batteries, with refrigerators, with old electronics that are placed on sidewalks. I've learned that you can make money with orange pills, that you can make money with watermelon rind that you can make money with food scraps for the parts of fruits and vegetables that people don't eat after they've thrown them away through composting. I'll teach you more about composting later. I've learned that you can, you can create entire careers by simply sweeping sidewalks and learning the scientific processes behind dust accumulation and learning therm thermodynamics and heat distribution in some of these um, these, these, these mobile homes that are parked on the streets. And I've learned that the skills that I've acquired from keeping my boots on the ground and my ears to the streets can then carry me to the White House and to the United Nations to solve some of this world's most pressing problems. Because Watts is an incubator. Watts is a laboratory. It's my, my space where I learn how to survive with nothing. And so long as I can survive with nothing in places like Watts, I can go anywhere in the world and empower and mobilize people to rise up against their oppressors and have all of the resources that they need from this earth to care for themselves when they're against their oppressors. So if a mango grows wildly or a banana tree grows wildly in the Amazon, I can say to these indigenous peoples, I can say, I've used your knowledge in Watts and your knowledge has carried me through Watts and here are some of the experiences that I have in my concrete jungle. And as these people burn down your rainforest and as they deforest your homes and your villages and as they desolate your people, I can teach you how to survive and prevent a concrete jungle. 
And if, if they succeed in getting past us and they pave over the rainforest, like they paved over Watts before it became this, this hard, hardened city where you can't grow anything but a rose or some grass through concrete, then I can teach you how to keep your land and I can teach you how to reverse the course of industrialization in your homeland. Because at the end of the day, all of our old computers from the 1990s, all of our big box TVs that are that are ugly and no longer flash screens go down into Southern Mexico and go down into Tijuana. They go into Costa Chica and Oaxaca and Honduras and they pollute those villages. And then those people have to breathe in those toxins. And I don't want the waste of this country to become the death of people beneath us. Therefore, I like to learn in Watts and I like to take the activism that I learn here and I like to apply it globally so that humanity can be okay wherever I am and wherever the people are that I carry with me in these gardens who work by my side and on these podcasts and people like you, Heaven, and people like Fatima and people like all of the people that aspire for a better world. That's very admirable because, you know, the life itself is an obstacle and you, even though, you know, you're, you're, you're still making a way out of no way. And I always see that as admirable because I see it from my mom every day and I see it from other people who live in this neighborhood every day. You know, you, you have found, you found a way to make money because you can make money out of anything. You know, you you get something and you know you're you're gonna get get something out of it. And that's that's very you know what happened? Cool. You know what? See, I, I did find and discover some things, but you know, when when uh Christopher Columbus and Hernan Cortez, when they got lost at sea and accidentally came to what is now known as North America. They, they started to call it the new world, right? Mm-hmm. So that meant the old world is where they came from, from Spain and from, from Britain and from different parts of Europe, right? But who, who was the world new to? It was new to them. It wasn't new to the indigenous people who had been here, who had yeah. occupied and lived on this land and learned from this land and, and celebrated this land, right? Yep. So these weren't discoveries on my part. I, I sat and I prayed and I worried. Like, I'm a PhD student. I don't know how I'm going to survive. The cost of housing in California is very high. I really need to raise my children. I don't have time to raise my children and have a successful career in academia. And all these people at this university, for the most part, are racist. And I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm not happy. And you know what I said? I said, you know, I'm just going to start taking walks. So I started taking walks and I saw the abuelitas selling elotes on the corner and selling tamales. And I saw the, the abuelos collecting metal and mattresses. And I saw the children figuring out how to feed themselves with nothing. And this ghetto taught me how to survive this world in such a way that no parts of my education ever could. And for that, right. I'm, I'm eternally grateful. Because like you said, they aren't discoveries, they're innovations. These are things that have been in our community that this we ghetto, see every day. Ghetto, having this ghetto technology is the cure 
to all of the problems in the world. This get, I call it ghetto technology, this survival instinct, this mm-hmm. innovation that people in Watson and Compton and Chicago and in Detroit and in Philadelphia and all those places have to have as a matter of life or death are the things that will solve some of the most pressing issues in this nation. We've been, we've been the bottom of the bottom. So why not ask us how we've survived? And then put some of those things that we've done into practice in such a way that can then become policy so that you, you realize that the solution to global warming and the solution to some of these, these this, the, the, crime, the quote unquote crime wave and economic disparities and the, the global crisis and all of that is rooted in empowering black people. Those are where the solutions are. Yes, and I completely agree. You know, like why why aren't they asking an 80 year old woman that's that lives in a low income neighborhood? How did you survive that long if this neighborhood is so dangerous? How did you learn to live, create a family that long and grow in a neighborhood that is low income or has a high crime rate? How did that happen? Because, you know, survival and, and, you know, just being a human and wanting to see better for not only yourself, but for if you have one, your family or the people you love and, and are around. Um, got a little bit off topic, but it's never, it's never. Nothing is, a, nothing is irrelevant when it comes yeah, to Yeah, nothing, nothing is never discluded from these type of conversations. Um, but to ask you a question that, that relates uh, to the podcast, what are different issues you've noticed um whether it's like higher income communities like versus lower income communities do you have like a couple issues that you've noticed just just off the top of your head so one of the things that i that i find most disturbing is that some well-meaning nonprofit organizations come into places like watts right and they say, the best way to get involved and to empower your community is, is to volunteer. They say that to poor people who are financially insecure and who need all the money that they can get to feed their families, who, who battle you know, the reality, the lived experiences of having drug addicted family members, who battle eviction, you know, who battle high medical bills and diabetes and who battle, battle food insecurity, right? But these are people who CEOs and who are at the head of nonprofits that get well, that get well paid to come into the hood and tell us that the best way to fix our community is to volunteer, right? And then they bring staff with them. They bring dozens of people who also get well paid to come and tell us those things with them as opposed to moving out of the way and giving us the money and teaching us to do it for ourselves and allowing us to have the jobs that are intended to service and empower our community. And one of the things that I've noticed is that in places like Westchester, Culver City, Marina Del Rey, on the west side, they call it the west side, west of us, Mm -hmm. people got time to volunteer. They got nice houses, they got 401ks, they got generational wealth and inheritance. They don't have to live paycheck to paycheck. They don't have to think twice or look inside their bank account before they buy something. They ain't got to think twice. They ain't got to think three times. They ain't got to think four times. They ain't got to think five times about nothing like that, right? Mm -hmm. So 
keep that model of, yeah, you will empower your community by volunteering over there. Go, go over there and have them volunteer because they got time. But bring us the money that you give your CEO. Bring us the money that you give your director. Give us economic empowerment and skills and allow us to serve our community and get paid to do so in the same way that you do or get out of town. That's one of the obstacles now. It's very difficult to navigate that space because at the same time, we need trees planted in watts. Mm-hmm. We need solar panel installation. We need these things, but we don't need them to be here as a, as a, as a, as a, as a means to, for rapid gentrification. But we, we need them here to make our, our social and environmental environment, make our environments much more conducive to our survival and much more conducive to our longevity. We, we want a place where we can retire. We want to own our own homes. We don't but, just want to make it look pretty for people who, who came to gentrify. Right. We would like to look at the prettiness that we just created. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's, that's one of the things. Like, there's people at, this, at, at the heads of some of these nonprofits that make decisions on behalf of our communities, but who are, who are not boots on the ground, who are not aware who are not aware of some of the lived experiences of people here. And I, I, don't, I don't mind folks being in that position. However, I would like them to move aside and let some of these abuelitas who, 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 who want Take to that retire, position. yeah, and who want to die easy knowing that their grandchildren, everything's going to be all right for their grandchildren. Let them have a few years at the head of the table making that salary and making decisions because they know what's best for the community because they right here in the community at the grassroots every day serving the community. I and completely agree. People keep sitting around tables like, oh, well, we can't figure out how to get more black people involved in planting trees. Well, have you asked black people how they feel about trees? Have you asked black people if they have ancestors who who, who, who hung from nooses on trees? Then you like, can't what, just ask any black person. You have to ask a black person in the community that you're targeting. Right. And then what if black people, what if black people in watch don't want trees blocking their views from their windows? Right. Because, you know, or what if black people don't want trees because then they feel like it's gonna mess up their plumbing that they just spent their life savings to get fixed? Like engaged community, that, that's one of the barriers. Engagement, it's just resource accumulation and, and hoarding of, of resources and then sometimes misappropriation. I think one of the greatest acts of misappropriation is not putting people from the community in positions of power so they can make the best decisions on behalf of their, their themselves. Yes, you're talking to everybody, but you're not talking to the people that need to hear it. No, nah, you're talking at them and you and you telling, giving them these little five And not listening to what they have to say. There yeah. you go. Why you okay. make $150,000 a year to come tell us how to save ourselves. Get out the way. Mm-hmm. Okay, that leads me to another question. Um, how do you view the aspect of systematic racism in the environment? So there's people in environmental justice, as we call it, in, 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 in composting and in, in tree planting and in gardening and in urban agriculture who believe that we should just make it about people and we should just make it about plants like right but when they say people for them they mean white people yeah let's bring the history of racism with us they don't mean let's 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 talk about whether or not these gardens and these farms are accessible to people in wheelchairs and on walkers 
They don't mean people who, who have challenges that keep them from being able to work in gardens all day because they have to work a nine to five and then they have to work a five to, to midnight to feed their families. They don't mean people who don't have access to some of the documents and fancy lingo that, that, that regulates these spaces because everything is in English. They don't mean indigenous peoples. That's not, that's not the people they mean. They mean normative people. They mean people with that privilege, with that wealth. People whose ancestors may or may not have owned slaves, but nonetheless have access to economic upward mobility by virtue of who their parents are or what their parents were allowed to do before the civil rights movement, during the civil rights movement, after the civil rights movement, during black power, during the Reagan era, during the crack epidemic of the 90s. You see, those are not the people they're talking about. They're talking about people who can go into boardrooms and take photo ops or go into New Orleans, post-Katrina New Orleans or come into Watts and plant a tree and take a big group photo and say, look, look, friends, look at what we've done. And then use the photo as a tax write-off. Those are the people that they're talking about. Or to show that they have uh, diversity. That is systemic racism. That is erasure of people who are actually on the ground. So if you invite a group of white people in the Watts to plant trees, right? And they come for one day out of a five-year period and then they take a photo and it gets put up on your website everybody celebrates them like oh my god they're making a difference but you don't even engage in people that do this every day in these gardens that hand out food at churches you know that 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 sweat with 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 no with no access to like shade spaces to make sure that these kids have tomatoes and peppers for their salads come on man and that's that though that's that's environmental racism in a nutshell. That too is environmental racism, excluding the people who do the labor and then putting people in place who don't do anything and putting them on the front cover of the movement. That's that's that is toxic environmental racism. And we oppose that here. Because they make it they make it sound so good and make it seem like they want to help so much, but it's all for the benefit of them. Yeah, you don't help you don't help a, 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 a people by handing them fish forever. You help them by teaching them how to build fishing how to poles, catch it. How, how to, to build yeah. fish, fishing poles with the things around them, and then teaching them how to construct boats so they can go into the deepest waters and they can and they can get the good quality fish and bring it back and then feed entire villages as opposed to just one household. You That's make them self-dependent. Absolutely. In which we already are, but in a more healthier way. And then another another barrier is we can't talk about white supremacy. We can't talk about white racism. We can't talk about white people who 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 pride themselves on having that one black friend who are in the environmental movement because people feel guilty and feel triggered and feel like oh well I felt uncomfortable. Safe. Yeah, man. Yeah, it ain't about your comfort. It's about our livelihood. It's about the future. It's about our grandchildren. It's about the unborn babies that we advocate for. That's who it's mm -hmm. about. It's not about your how fragile you are or how, how much you want tears to be the because same. at the end of the day it still happened and it's still affecting us yeah yeah and we gotta live here you drive back to beverly hills if yes. you ever come sometimes you stay in beverly Hills and just be on zoom all day telling people what to do from a, from a, from behind the screen mm -hmm. I've, I've watched it um it it, it actually it actually really does hit it, this conversation Moses you don't understand is really enlightening me and really inspiring me the most 
to want to do more for my community and which I already feel like I am with all the policy advisory boards, but it makes me want to actually get out into my community and work with my community and really connect with my neighbors because there's so many innovative people and so many go-getters in this community that no one knows about, that no one sheds lights on. And that- How much more time do we have having, because I have a commissioner by my side. I don't know if you know what a commissioner is, but commissioners are people that, that, uh, that sort of advise um, our, our political leaders to assure that some of the things that the decisions they make are informed by actual people whose boots are on the ground. Do you, you wanna take five minutes and you wanna ask her a few questions or have her say something about the environmental movement because she's one of the activists that, that is in the garden with me regularly. You wanna meet her? Yes, that would, that would be amazing. Okay, I'm gonna stand up and I'm gonna give her my seat. I'm gonna have her introduce herself. You introduce yourself to her. All right, sorry about that. I was just unmuting. Okay, hi y'all. How are you this evening? Hi, how are you? Um, Heaven, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Heaven. What a beautiful name. Um, my name is Danielle Marquez, and I have the privilege of sitting on the parks. It's actually we renamed it to um, Community Service and Fine Arts Department for the city of Hawthorne. Um, and I, you know really wanted to get into that space. It originally was, was Parks and Rec, but community service is more encompassing of what the goal is and how you know we're hoping to support the community. Mm -hmm. um, but it, for me, has always really been about green initiatives and how to translate that. It's so funny that we're doing this because it was how to translate that into hands-on programming, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I work mostly with youth um, in the, in the, in the, during, the, during my council, I say it's a really fancy title for a volunteer, um, but I do um, have the privilege of sitting on the board and big, pro you know, different projects, park, park projects, um, and a, a lot of different city projects come in front of us. Right now, we're discussing parkway gardens, and, you know, as I heard, overheard just briefly, some of the things that Moses was talking about. And one of the biggest struggles that I have is with systematic racism and systemic racism, how that translates in their communities. But I have the chairman is a Caucasian male and he and I are constantly at different visions. At Parkway Garden, for instance, he does not want the Parkway Garden because he thinks that people are going to irrigate what he doesn't realize is it's, it's incorrect irrigation because he thinks there's going to be mud and that he's on it and it's going to make him upset and i'm like old man get out of our way of progress sorry okay that's, <laughs> off the record. that's totally off the record okay you have to delete that aspect okay. no no I keep it on it's 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 like we're recording who you are and what you represent and what your group is all about <laughs> But uh, it's understandable, <laughs> you know, like you at the end of the day, you're going to know what's happening in your community because at the end of the day, this old white man, mind you, you're old and white, so you're you're kind of kind of got some conservative views, probably. Um, but you don't know what's happening. And that's the big thing about it. 
I, we know what's happening, especially the youth, you know, they, you know, especially the youth, like kids like me or say Haiti, I don't know, maybe, but just kids like us that, that live here and have to probably walk home or things like that. We see these, um, community things that we feel like should be happening and shouldn't should be taken away or be fixed in a way and for me personally I would like to figure out how to help my community more in a more interactive way than just sitting behind a screen so what do you do what, what organization do you represent and why should commissioners be aware of of your group's impact on our social environment, our, our lived and in our lived experiences. Are you in STEM? Like, tell tell this commissioner about yourself. Um. Well, I'm currently, I'm, I'm currently doing a couple things. I'm not gonna lie. Um. I'm currently in a couple policy advisory boards. One is for partnership, which is my school. Um. Well, my school, the partnership that works for my school or um, pretty much works over my school and um, I help with the policies literally the policies um, we're working on equitable funding especially equitable funding digital funding um, connecting with parents ways we can help the students like me um, pre uh, prevail more and get into better not better but like get into college have a higher rate of getting into colleges for low income students. That's just one of the um, advocacy boards, I mean, advisory boards, sorry. Um, the other one is my wellness uh, chasers. Well, that's that's what it's called, wellness chasers. Um, we work with LA Trust and um, we're currently working on ways to advocate for uh, wellness for teenagers like uh, me is, uh, my school, which is Jordan and Locke High School, uh, they have a different name, but we're working together um, and we're um, create, not creating, we're literally uh, like talking, having these conversations with kids my age and everything like that. Not everything like that, but literally kids my age up under, it don't matter, just teenagers. Um, and we're talking to them about health, sexual health, mental health, um, you know, things like that, things that should be talked about with teenagers because we go through things because everyone has been a teenager before. And it's pretty stressful, believe it or not. I mean, you got to believe it because you, you've been 16 before. I'm pretty sure, I hope. Yeah, we remember, I'm happy you got to meet Danielle. Um, I met Danielle through her activism in Watts. She is a, both she and I are what are called master gardeners. We've gotten our training from the University of California, but she's a nutritionist. So she comes in and she teaches folks in Watts, the, the elderly folks, the, the young children and the mothers, how to um, how to create garden fresh salads. Remember I told you my kids make their mm -hmm. own salad? She comes in and she helps us put flavor into what we do. So we appreciate it. And she does it she does it every other Wednesday at the New Beginnings Community Garden and Watch, which is the place where I told you we, we do consciousness raising and we talk about environmental racism and we work to create jobs for the, the oppressed people and for people who are at the bottom of the barrel in terms of economic empowerment. 
So I'm happy that she's here and I'm happy she got to hear this interview. And I'm delighted that you chose me as a candidate to be interviewed for your podcast. I, I appreciate I appreciate you coming and talking. I really truly do appreciate this conversation. What what is what drives you to stay motivated with all the challenges you have in your field of work? Like, cause I know there's a couple just being advocate you know it's hard for people to listen people are very ignorant and very um one-sided and don't know how to open up their ears and just you know don't listen and and just you know don't care so how how do you stay motivated what pushes you what's your drive so what motivates me is knowing that young people are whether whether i believe this to be true or not doesn't matter but they show me that this is true. And that's that they're listening and they're watching and they're absorbing everything like sponges. And when they do that, it's like you, it's almost like a filter. So if you have a bucket of dirty water, right? But it's not, it's not dirty. The water itself is not dirty, but you have like- A bucket that's dirty, but the water is clean. Yeah, but you have like, like, like particles in it. Like- Okay, 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 okay like little pieces of soil and sand or um like leaves and stuff just just from a bucket of water being you know set out in the garden right and mm-hmm. you put a you put a sponge in the water and then you take the sponge you you allow it to absorb some water and then you take the sponge out and then you hold the sponge over a different bucket and then you squeeze the sponge and the water comes out and then in, the, in that bucket you, you, you have water right? That's the way I think of young people. So us, us activists, those of us have been, who have been doing this for 20 years, we are taking, we are taking young people as though they're sponges and they're absorbing from us without all the, 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 the debris and without all the particles that are in our bucket. And then their, 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 their ambitions and their passions and their futures are being put into a bucket without all of the problems and all of the leaves and all of the sand and all of the 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 the, the physical particles that we have in our buckets. And then their 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 worldview is clear because they can see from beyond garden spaces and they can see from behind the trees that they planted and they can see from beyond podcast interviews where they've been awakened to changing the trajectory of their lives to one of empowerment as opposed to one that's directed primarily by money, you know, and they can see that there's a need for environmental justice and there's a need for economic empowerment and so on. And in doing so, they can then navigate this world in a way that's significantly much more effective than the way that we can. Because the objective of any student always in my experience is to be better than their teacher and so long as we're teachers our students are going to be better than us so I look forward to the next 20 to 25 years to see what you all become and to see what your children become and your grandchildren become if I'm if I'm 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 blessed to live as long and even if I'm not if I become an ancestor and I'm in the wind or I become a tree or become whatever a pepper (laughs) or a butterfly or a bee I like to to just or or even actually literally the fly on the wall in the room when racism finally falls because future generations give it its death blow 
I like to, I like, I look forward to being that fly on the wall or on the fertilizer or wherever I'll be. And hopefully, I hope you live long enough so I can get your vote for when I run for mayor. Yeah, you see what I did there? Manifesting. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. My vote and all the votes of my neighbors. That's, that's, that's unity I'll, right there. I will live long enough to write a biography of you as you know as as a as a mayor and this this podcast itself will go in that biography and we'll give it a nice chapter that's what we'll do now i i now i gotta become a mayor okay um so my next question is how has being an advocate changed your way of thinking because i know you know like sometimes the you know you may have been thinking a certain way now you're like okay my eyes are open now how has it changed the way of your thinking? So I have been humbled. So when I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And when I'm wrong, the community tells me I'm wrong. And there's no, well, what about his feelings? Or, you know, what about, what if, what if he gets mad and he doesn't want to come back? They ain't worried about that. They, you have to be pure here. If you serve the community, you have to be here and you have to do it intentionally. And your, your personal life must match your public life because if it doesn't there's this sort of forced alignment that'll come out because everything that happens comes to light and as a result of that it's very very important to be your authentic self wherever you are in your private life and in your public life because if your if your private life is not in order you can't serve and if you don't serve you'll never truly be fulfilled in your in your private life so you have to find balance. Yes, I completely agree. Having balance gives you, gives a person, anybody, a lot of peace of mind and a lot of, what's the word? More so self-reassurance because you know, at the end of the day, you know, you're balanced, you're calm. So you're straight, you're good. What if people are too scared to advocate because their voices won't be heard how how what are your what are your how how would you hmm what's the word help or or lead someone to stepping out of that scared or hermit state So I will use black history to, to guide people. So one of the things I do, my mentor, Stephanie Evans, Dr. Stephanie Y. Evans at Georgia State developed is this, this idea of literary mentoring. Um, and the way that I've taken that concept for my own self is that I, I read biographies. I love biographies and I love autobiographies. And I use those as a guide to keep myself from reinventing the wheel in my activism. Of course, I've, I've got to adjust my approaches and my changes for current circumstances or current challenges. But one of the people that comes to mind when I think of things like not being able to use one's voice to advocate change, although you have those intentions and you can act, is Bayard Rustin. So Bayard Rustin was a civil rights, sort of quote unquote, civil rights icon. But he wasn't iconic in the sense that Martin Luther King or Malcolm X or, or Huey P. Newton or Rosa Parks or, or Zora Neale Hurston is iconic. He was behind the scenes because he was a gay Black man who was also active in the civil rights movement in the church. And you couldn't be a gay Black man 
active in the civil rights movement and involved with the church. Yeah, that's saying time. a lot. Yeah, no, 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 because that meant nobody would take you seriously because people mm-hmm. don't like they 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 didn't like gay gay black people. They didn't like gay people. They didn't like black people. So it was just sort of like. So then, what do you do? So what he did was he worked a lot behind the scenes. So people like Bayard Rustin um, are instrumental in the architecture, the social and cultural architecture of the civil rights movement. People like Audre Lorde, people like Laurieann Hansberry, um, even people like, like I would say Tracy Chapman. She has this wonderful song called Fast Car or Want to Start a Revolution that you, you might benefit from listening to. But those people, queer Black people, queer and non-gender conforming Black people have always been behind the scenes of Black empowerment, but have never been given their due. Studying their lives gives us a window into what it looks like to be an activist without a voice and act to enact change behind the scenes. Whether you live to see the results of your labor, the fruits of your labor or not, and knowing that you're driven by a purpose that is much bigger than yourself, that's much bigger than your community and much bigger than, the, than, the, than anything that you'll ever know. So you have to be willing to advocate for change that you may never live to see. And that's what people like Bayard Rustin and Audre Lorde uh, prided themselves on. Yes, yes, that, that was an amazing response to that question because it's like, you, you have to, um, you have to you have to be patient. Patience is key, really. Even though it sucks, and you know you want things to change fast and now, and you know, but being patient and and continue, continuously pushing for that change that you know is bound to happen, it's gonna happen, whether it's now or later. You know, systemic racism is still going on, but. Soon, hopefully, by the time me and Sir Haiti are like grown and old, and you know, we don't have to go through that or have to see that at all, or not even us, our children, our grandchildren, if we're willing to have children. But just things like that, we would like, we, I would like to see the, I would like to see equal pay between a man and a woman. I would like to see that a young black man won't be profiled while he walked down the street. You know, things like that. Um, You you will see it. Whether whether or not you have children um, will will never stop you from being a a parental figure to all the children of the world. So all the children of Watts are our children. All the children of Compton and Detroit and Chicago are our children. The children and Oaxaca are our children. Children in Chiapas and Costa Chica and Honduras and Chile and Cuba, wherever there are children that need to be empowered to enact change for a better society, for a better future, for a better world, those are our children. And we advocate and champion causes on their behalf until they're big enough and strong enough to do it on our behalf as elders, because we're gonna need young people to advocate for us as elders. Yes, that, that's that's true, because the youth know a little, but <laughs> it leads me to my second to last question. Do you have any advice for adolescents? May, may they be a teen or a kid that's 10 or 
through, I don't know, four? I don't know how many people start talking. Um, who might be interested in advocating for a problem in their community? Like, do you have any advice for kids like me who 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 would like to advocate but don't know how? Yeah, I was I would say sometimes you're gonna raise your voice and you're gonna act and it'll get frustrating and you'll feel debilitated and you'll feel defeated, right? Because change is slow to come. But I would advise each and every one of you to exercise awareness of the fullness of time. And what I mean by the fullness of time is I want you to put your lives in the perspective. I want you to think of your, your first memories and I want you to dream and journal about where you would like to be in the next five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years. And I would like you to dream of a, of a future. And I would like you to think critically about some of the steps that you think you might want to take to arrive at some of the biggest goals that you have. And that'll allow you to realize that some of these goals that you have are not as, 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 as difficult to reach. Um, and that'll allow you to look back in time at yourself and say, wow, when I was 15, I really thought that I would never get into college. But now that I'm 21 walking across this stage because I chose to go to college, I'm gonna graduate, here I am. Or wow, when I was 12, I didn't realize that I would become a world-class plumber or that I would be the person that will find the, 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 the cure to COVID-19 by simply growing food in the garden for my community members. I didn't realize that I would reach these goals. So if you journal and you document and you chronicle your life and the lives of people around you, then you'll never have a problem reflecting back on what you were going through before and then overcoming obstacles that keep you from reaching the goals that you have for yourselves that you think you want to meet in the future. Because you'll, be, you'll always have a, a, a vantage point where you'll be able to look like, wow, I never thought I would be here. So that means I can be there too. So journal, put yourselves into a much longer, broader historical context, stay in contact with your elders. And I don't just mean people who are relatives because some people can be toxic. I mean, find your, your people, find your kindred folks, the people mm -hmm. who think you do right now, the people who want to champion change. That's going to help you grow. Yep. And when you have problems, confide in those types of elders. Like you say, oh, I got this problem. I'm dating this person and I don't really know what to do. Find some people who are not going to judge you. They're going to cast judgment aside and they're going to really listen to what you're saying. They're going to say, you know what, honey? Maybe this person's not the best person for you because I don't like the way, you know, he smells. And then y'all can laugh. And then after the humor is over, then y'all can get real down to the bottom of the, of the, of the, to the real problem. You see, always have mentors, always have a journal, always go and meditate whenever you can. Always make sure you drink plenty of water and always make sure you got enough food in your stomach. This is thing that I have to live by. It's called HALT. H-A-L-T. Are you hungry? H-A-L-T. H is hungry. A is angry. L is lonely and T is tired. So when I start to feel like defeated or like I don't want to do this anymore, I say, am I hungry? Am I angry? Am I lonely? Am I tired? Or am I a combination of all four of those things or one or two of those things or three of those things? And when I solve, usually solve for hunger, then I don't, I don't feel so 
so tired because my blood sugar is back, you know? And when I'm angry, if I surround myself by friends I can trust, then that sort of, the loneliness goes away and then that helps me sort of get rid of the anger so then I can think clearly, you know? And never make decisions on, a, on an empty stomach if you can help it. Those are the types of things that I think that I wish I'd had when I was younger, that, that guidance. And those are the things that I, I raised my children, the principles I raised my children by. Oh, I appreciate you sharing that with me. I actually just wrote, wrote that down because that, that is something to live by. I, that, was, that was really, that was really something. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for the acronym. Um, yeah, and this halt, halt means to stop. Stop what you're doing. Just slow down and think about these things. Huh? Yes, just just in general. Halt. Yep. Just I, I stop. Love, I love, yeah. I learned that in therapy. So that's a, a therapeutic tool that I got from my therapist. My last and final question is, how would you suggest um, they, meaning us students, start out? Like, how could how could we start learning more about advocacy? Where is somewhere we could start if we don't know where to go or who to go to? So one of the things that you students, all of you should realize is that you have an audience of people who watch your work and who admire your work. And you're bigger to us than we ever could imagine we'd be to ourselves. You have an audience of commissioners. You have people who want to be interviewed by your group. You have people are in awe at the things that you do, the, the, your accomplishments. And I don't even think you all realize it because the city doesn't do right by you. And what I mean is you should be on the cover of LA Times for the work that you do. If you haven't already been there, you should be receiving accolades from the mayor's office. You should be on advisory councils. You should be the commissioners. You should be the people at the forefront of some of these these, 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 these decisions and these movements that I'm talking about. Because these decisions and those movements, those things come from us, by us, I mean us adults, being inspired by the questions that you ask us when you challenge our thinking like, dad, why? They say, dad, why is, um, why, dad, why are you always so tired? It doesn't make any sense. You should just take a nap. Or you should get some sleep when you can. Why do people make you work so much? Or, or, or dad, why don't you drink some coconut water? Because it's delicious. Like, as simple as that, like, my, my kids cause me to pause. Like, hey, drink some coconut water, man. So you could, you could get hydration in this hot garden, you know. Or when you say to me, um, uh, Moses, we would like to interview you for our podcast. I'm like, me? Little old me? Oh, it's an honor. Like, what have I ever done to, to, to deserve such an honor? When you start to see yourselves as royalty and you really, really realize that there's hundreds of thousands and millions of children and high school students and, and, and people who are high school age who don't have access to high school that look to you and that need you to be their light, then you really will realize how powerful you are. And so long as you have that realization, you realize that there's just truly nothing that the powers that be can stop you because you are the future. You are the solution to all these problems that we think we have when we sit around these tables and we talk in circles and we say, well, we just don't know what to do. You guys know what to do. You guys take TikTok 
and you share videos on TikTok that solve problems that adults don't even realize they have. They say, well, we don't know what TikTok is, or we don't want to look at that. But look, but look, TikTok, all the solutions to your problems with your old self are on TikTok. Just take some time and learn how to use something to look at TikTok. And then some of these people say, oh, oh man, maybe at this senior citizen center, we do need to have a random spontaneous dance party. Maybe we need to realize that it, 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 it'll help our arthritis if we, if we dance and we work with our hands and we create things like these children do on TikTok. So now we got old people in, in senior citizens home saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make me a TikTok. I'm gonna make me a TikTok, TikTok, TikTok. And they just standing there, just spinning in circles, dancing and twerking, talking about TikTok, TikTok, TikTok. But it's, it's making a difference in their ability to, to get their faculties back, their mental state back, to keep their spirits and help them remember how beautiful their lives were instead of them rotting away in senior citizens home where these nurses neglect them and don't take care of their needs. So keep doing what you're doing. All of us are watching and we look forward to continuing to watch your work. And you know what? We have no other choice but to be the future because that's when we were born. So, <laughs> hey, you have no choice. But I, I will say now that I truly do appreciate advocates like you, Ms. Fatima, Ms. Fatima Dan Danielle in the back, if she can hear me, um, who, who advocate for things that aren't being said, or if they are, no one is listening, and y'all are making them listen. Like, you know, you're telling them, hey, this is what's, what, this is what's going on, and this is how we should be fixing it. And um, with that, our sixth episode has come to an end. We appreciate every individual who has taken time out of their day to listen to us. Um, we will be posting things about our podcast through our social media. Um, so make sure to follow our robotics team on Instagram at terawatts6904. Um, that's Tara Watts with two T's, 6904. Um, Moses, would you like to shout out anyone before we sign yeah, out? Yeah, I'd, like I'd like to say congratulations to every student on this call or who's listening who would like to get into UCLA or UC Berkeley or UC Irvine or Howard University or Clark Atlanta University or any university of their choosing with a full ride scholarship. Um, I'd like you to continue your podcast. We're going to use that to justify full ride scholarships, although we don't really need to do much justifying. And I'm going to continue to open up doors for you all and champion behind the scenes to make sure that you don't go into debt to go to college. And for th those of you who do not want to go to college but want to start your own businesses, I got your back there too. I will work with the, with the South Bay Business Center and I will work with commissioners and I will work with mayors and I will work with city planners and city managers to assure that you all have the resources that you need and whether or not you ever see those resources that just know that me and all my homies are fighting for them on your behalf and we look forward to you joining us and fighting by our sides when when your day in the sun comes yes again thank you so much moses for letting uh us interview you shout out to our sponsors college track Raytheon and NASA Legacy. I am Heaven and this is Resilient Leaders of STEM. Bye everyone. See you in our next episode.
Thank you for having us. Thank you, Dr. Watson. We look forward to watching you grow and all of your colleagues grow. At one day, Watson. one day. <laughs> all the day is tomorrow, Dr. Watson. Thank you. Amen. Thank you.